I'm Sally, Jason's mom. I'm Dave, Jason's dad. And I'm Gretchen, Jason's sister. You're listening to Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Oh, thank God. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 447 for March 16th, 2015. On today's show, guitarist Mike Bono. Don't forget, you can become a member of the Jazz Session for just $5 a month. It gets you MP3s and other exclusive content. And your $5 goes directly toward keeping the site online so you have access to the extensive archives. If you like what you hear please become a member. Please also rate and review the show in iTunes. Don't forget, there's a radio version each week that airs Friday mornings, and you can find out how to listen to that at thejazzsession.com. I'm starting stand-up these days, and if you'd like to hear a show, a new podcast that tracks the beginning days of my stand-up career, check out firstlaughs.com. My blog is at jasoncrane.org, and my PR for artists is all available at cranewrites.com. By the way, the opening of today's show, My Parents and My Sister, was recorded at their house, where I am on a brief vacation, and if you want to hear how long it took to get that 15 seconds of audio, visit thejazzsession.com for the YouTube clip of us trying to record it. It's, it's a hoot. I saw guitarist Mike Bono on one of those concert window live streaming concerts with Natalie Cressman. Natalie Cressman's been on the show before. And I really liked his playing and his writing, and I asked him to come on the show. Let's hear a little bit of music from Mike and then my conversation with Mike Bono. My guest is guitarist Mike Bono. Mike, thanks so much for being on the jazz session. 
my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I uh, I had heard your name, but I finally got a chance to uh, to hear you and actually watch you in a concert window duo show that you did with Natalie Crespin, and I was really impressed with your writing and playing, and I wanted to have a chance to talk to you about your music. Uh, maybe we can just start right there and and uh, talk about how you and Natalie Crespin got together and how this duo project got started. Sure. Um, I met Natalie, I guess, about three years ago, maybe maybe even four years ago, at this at this jazz jam session at a at a mutual friend of ours house, and uh, we were just playing you know standards and stuff like that, and we exchanged information and kind of lost touch for a couple of years, and then we kind of reconnected at the Stanford Jazz Workshop out in California. And um, she had mentioned to me that she had some music that she wanted to try out and that she was going to give me a call, and then she did. And I did a gig with her band. Oh, no, we did a duo show first, actually, at Rockwood. And then she asked me to start playing with her band. And uh, we just, after working on the duo project the first time, you know, we had a good chemistry. I felt that you know, her voice and, and my guitar playing work pretty well together, so we decided to try doing some co-writes, and I would send her some solo guitar pieces that I was working on, uh, kind of like the ones that you had heard on the Concert Window show, and she put lyrics to them, and then we'd get together and, you know, workshop them a bit, and uh, yeah. And for folks uh, who haven't heard this duo project, this is not, it's not like you're sending her a bunch of easy, you know, chordal vamps for her to sing over a lot of the stuff you write is is pretty angular it has uh, a, a pretty extreme range i mean like octave range and i was really impressed with both how difficult the music sounded uh but also how easy you guys made it sound maybe you can talk a little bit about how you write for singers sure um yeah that's that's really nice to hear thank you um so a lot of the pieces that I write, especially some of those, they all started out as just solo guitar pieces, and they, I always try to keep some element of it to be somewhat memorable and, and, and singable, and although the melodies are kind of angular and rangy, like you mentioned, I, they're pretty diatonic and sometimes repetitive, so a lot of times I'll take those melodies and really mess with the harmony a lot. That's that's really fun for me. I, I really like to, to study chords and open string voicings and, and stuff like that. Um, but whenever I send the stuff to Natalie, I don't send her a chart. She just listens to it and, and gets it instantly. It's pretty amazing. And she sings it in a way that although the melodies might appear to be difficult, she makes them sound really simple um, and finds a way to write lyrics that don't make it sound difficult, which I think is a really hard thing to do, and she does it really effortlessly. Yeah, I definitely did notice that you you have a bit of a sadistic side, harmonically speaking, <laughs> as you, as you <laughs> mentioned, you like to mess around with the chords underneath because it it seems like a lot of the time. And again, I thought you guys were able to pull this off really, really well and not make it sound this way to the average listener. But a lot of the time, it, it feels like she's kind of up there 
without a net. You know, this is not everything is going to go harmonically in the direction that you would normally expect. Not everything resolves where you were expected to, that kind of thing. And I thought that was pretty that was pretty interesting. It just it made it it gave it a little more risk and danger, which I thought made it fun as a listener. I always try to write the melodies so that they stand strongly, you know, on their own. And the harmony for the listener, I think, is just a different way for them to interpret the melody, if, if that makes sense. I yeah, think anyone, like every different person that hears it will get a different feeling from, from the, from the harmony. I think that the melody had it been under a more, I mean, had it been above a more diatonic harmony, it might've come across much different. I want to talk about uh, the album from where you are, but first, uh, maybe we should fill in a little bit of biographical detail for folks who are meeting you for the first time right now. Uh, okay. my, from what I'm gathering, from what I've read, it looks like you're uh, from Jersey. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And can you talk yeah. about uh, kind of how you grew up in, in terms of uh, playing music? I know you started playing very, very young. Yeah. Um, so when I was about five, six years old, my mom uh, showed me her, she had an acoustic guitar and she showed it to me and I was really fascinated by it. She would play chords and I would strum them, you know, it was like really fascinating to me. And uh, she took me into a music store to try and get some lessons and the guy was like, oh, he's too young, his hands are too small and she was like, no way. Like, so we left there and then she found me a little like half size guitar. I still have it. it. Has the same strings on it. And um, her and my uncle started showing me some chords. And then they found me a really great guitar teacher. I, this was actually when we were living on Staten Island. That's where I was born and raised. And uh, I started taking lessons there, just learning how to. Actually, when I first started playing, I started learning how to read music, which really came in handy. Uh, now. Um, played a lot of Beatles music growing up. My mom is like a Beatles fanatic and uh, my dad likes a lot of classic rock. So I was always around lots of music like that growing up. So I was playing a lot of Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and I used to like Green Day a lot. Uh, and then when I got into like middle school, 
high school time, I was really into progressive metal. So I was playing a lot of stuff like Dream Theater, Between the Buried and Me, and a lot of like other like loud screaming kind of bands. <laughs> <laughs> but then I I also had an expressed interest in singing, and uh, I signed up for some voice lessons at this local music store in, in New Jersey. And I was sitting in the waiting room, and I heard this guitar playing on the on the radio. And I was like, what the heck is this? This is amazing. And it was Pat Martino, who I'd never heard before. I really hadn't... I mean, I played in the middle school jazz band, but I never really was like listening to jazz and studying it. I was just kind of playing it. I knew a couple of like seven chords and stuff like that. But I heard Pat Martino, and I kind of freaked out. I was like, I had no idea that like jazz guitar could sound like that, like, you know, like really fast and, you know, fluid. And uh, I never, I never really heard that kind of, that harmony before either. So uh, this was back in the Napster days, I'm ashamed to say. I went home and downloaded all of his records and started listening to them and then started talking to some, some older friends that I knew that were musicians and, they told me about guitarists like Pat Metheny and Jim Hall, and they'd given me some records. Um, but in high school, I pretty much just had the Pat, Pat Martino tribute to Wes Montgomery. I had that like actual physical CD, and then I had uh, Still Live, Keith Jarrett, The Love Supreme, John Coltrane, and the Pat Metheny and Jim Hall duo record, the live one. That's an eclectic I, mix of music right there. Yeah, really random. <laughs> I wasn't around a lot of jazz musicians at the time, so I was kind of like on my own and just with what I had. And those were the records that I listened to mostly. And uh, yeah, so I had a couple of older friends that were in music school at the time. So I started taking lessons with who's now a really great friend of mine, this guitarist Dominic Petrolisi, who was at Berkeley. He started showing me, you know, more jazz things to practice. And I, I also studied with Vic Uris um, and Jerry Topinka. Sure. And, um, yeah, I guess it was like around like sophomore year of high school, I started getting pretty serious about jazz, like really practicing it. And I bought a real book, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> I no longer own it, but that was how I started learning tunes first.
Now, did you have any place to play at this time? Or was this all like uh, you practicing on your own, kind of checking out whatever you could find and, and just practicing in your room kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely a lot of that. Um, but my mom, she's she's the best. She's, you know, I'm like forever grateful to her for even putting the guitar in my hands. She went to this local pizza shop that wasn't too far. And I was 16 at the time, so I couldn't even drive. And she got me a gig playing with this other guitar player. She'd never actually heard us play standards together, which, but she went in there and was like, yeah, my son's a jazz guitarist. Like, you know, you guys should try having some, some jazz in the restaurant. And it was great. It paid 75 bucks a person. And like, she would drive me to the gig. And me and my friend had a real book and neither of us knew any tunes. So we would be reading, literally reading them out of the book and learning them on the spot. And yeah, that was how I learned a lot of tunes actually was on that gig, like just reading them out of the real book. And then there was this one gig where I'd forgotten to bring the book and we did the whole thing from memory. And we were like, oh, okay, I guess we're starting to learn these tunes. But it was interesting because I learned, <laughs> I kind of learned how to play over these tunes in kind of an, I guess, a more unconventional way. I wasn't really like transcribing and learning licks and taking them through keys and stuff like that. I would, I had like a specific set of voicings that I knew and I kind of used those as a guide to learn how to improvise. So if I saw like a D minor seven chord and I had two voicings say for D minor seven, like I knew that I could use those notes so maybe that had some influence in the way that I construct melodies that are more angular and spread. Sure. Know. And I have to say, $75 a person, is that still pretty good New York money right now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's enough. That's <laughs> your, your, your pizza place gig was one of the higher paying gigs I've heard of, actually, recently. Seriously. And I was 16. <laughs> it was crazy. And yeah, my parents drove drove us to the gig and we got to eat pizza and it was fun. I mean, I, I learned so so much of the music that I know today at that gig. <laughs> so when you guys were working these things out out of the real book, were you playing melodies that you'd actually heard before? Like, were you paging through until you found a tune that you knew? Or were you just playing things and you weren't even sure how they were supposed to sound? Yeah, I, I guess I'm a little embarrassed to say that, like, a lot of them I'd never heard before. Like I said, like, I didn't have, I wasn't really, like, living in a, jazz community in high school so I was kind of kind of on my own for the most part with the exception of some of the teachers that I had later on before I was decided that it was something I wanted to pursue I didn't have a lot of records so a lot of the tunes I was just playing because they were in the book and I thought that was what you had to do but once I started you know taking lessons with guys like Vic and Jerry they were telling me oh you have to check out this stuff and like you know learn the tunes by by ear, learn them from recordings, memorize them. And that's when I was like, okay, this is the way to do it. And when I got to Berkeley, um, that I started doing that a lot more. And honestly, just learning a lot of tunes at sessions. Um, kids would call. I didn't know a lot of tunes when I got to Berkeley, and I was, I was pretty intimidated that a lot of kids my age already knew, like, you know, like a hundred songs. Like, that blew my mind. So I started listening to stuff and learning it by ear. And a lot of times I would just play a song at a session that I didn't know and then eventually just learn it that way. Um, so was it around yeah. the middle of high school that you started to think about 
playing jazz guitar as the thing you were going to do, or at least something you were going to pursue more seriously? Um, yeah, at that time, I was actually, I was playing, you know, like that jazz gig that I mentioned, and I also was doing a lot of work in pit orchestras, like, um, just like playing for different musicals and community theater and getting paid for it, which was really cool. So I, I thought to myself, you know, I, when I was getting ready to start uh, looking at schools, uh, I wasn't really highly encouraged to pursue performing. I was kind of like being advised to maybe do music education or to maybe, you know, keep doing the pit orchestra thing. So in my head, I thought like, oh, maybe I'm going to do this Broadway. Maybe I'll try to get on in a Broadway pit and do stuff like that. Um, it wasn't really until I got to Berkeley and started playing more jazz and playing other people's music and started writing that I was like, oh, wow, this is really what I want to do. Like, And the fact that I was playing gigs at school with my own music and playing for other people, like, I was like, oh, this is definitely something that's, that's doable. So will you talk about putting together the Mike Bono group? I actually, I have to talk about a person that was, and is still a major influence on me as a, as a player and as a person. Uh, when I first got to Berkeley, um, I was exposed to a lot of new music that I'd never heard. And it was pretty overwhelming. And uh, one person's music that I heard that really, really resonated with me was guitarist Julian Lange. And, um, I ran into him at Berkeley, like just by chance. He was walking around the campus and I said, Hey man, like I'm such a big fan of you playing, you know, I'd love to get a lesson from you sometime. And he said, sure. So I went over to his place and it was like one of the most, <laughs> it was probably the most life changing lesson that I'd ever had. I have it recorded and I still refer to it sometimes. And, uh, yeah, so I started listening to his music a lot and I really loved the way that he, 
the way that he writes and arranges his music, I think his melodies are so beautiful and the way he arranges the harmony throughout the instruments. And Mike, and, what made uh, the lesson so life-changing? He just showed me and just opened my eyes to so many things that I didn't even know were possible. Like the way he had me thinking about improvising and like different things to practice and just this whole, his, like his vibe, he just had this really strong aura that I'd never experienced. Like the way that he played, wow. Um, yeah, he just opened, he just had me tap into so many things that I didn't even know were were possible. Like ways to, to construct solos and to go about improvising. He'd given me so many different conceptual things to try out and uh yeah i just i think i took to it like a duck to water as they say that's great i'll just mention to folks that uh, julian's been on this show a couple of times and if you go in the archives you can find uh, interviews with him there so after this lesson you started listening to his music and also trying out the things he was showing you Mhm. yeah he he one thing he um kind of this might sound kind of silly to other musicians out there, but one thing that he really got me into was this idea of, of motivic development when you're when you're improvising. And basically what that is is taking one melody and repeating it um, and maybe finding ways to take that one melody and either alter it rhythmically or adding to it melodically. And that was something that I had, didn't have in my playing or writing at all. It was very, very scattered and just a lot, and you couldn't really grasp onto anything. And that was really like attractive to me, like having a, like a strong, simple melody. And uh, I think that that's played a big part in my writing today. I, a lot of the stuff that I've written specifically for that record, um, a lot of the melodies are simpler and repetitive and there's a lot of like motifs that, that repeat within the sections and develop within you know from measure to measure and so is this the kind of as you were thinking about these things and and working on these things were you also thinking well i'd like to have a band to play this kind of music with yeah absolutely um so i had a friend of mine who was living on my floor in the dorm room, this was my sophomore year, so he was a freshman, and I heard, I was in the practice room, and I heard him practicing, and he's a cello player, and uh, I knocked on his door, and I said, hey man, I have this tune, I just wrote it out, like, would you mind playing through it with me? I said, sure. So we played through it, and it was, I thought it sounded really good. So I said, hey man, I'm going to like try to organize a session, um, let's, or would you be down? He said, sure. So I had another group of guys that I was playing sessions with like pretty regularly and um, I called them all up and asked them to do a session. I said, we're going to read through some tunes. Is that cool? But yeah, and the drummer that I actually initially called bailed like an hour before we were going to have this session. So the, the bass player, uh, Jared Henderson, he's a good friend of mine. He's one of the first people that I met at Berkeley uh, and that I ever played with. He said, I'm going to call my friend Roberto. I said, sure, no problem. So Roberto came to the session, and I'd only played with him once before, and he just killed his stuff and played really beautifully. And 
I knew right then and there, I was like, yeah, man, you got to keep playing with us. So, yeah, it was, the music just seemed to play itself. Like, I brought the, I brought everyone the charts, and it was, it just happened really easily. I didn't really have to say, have to say much. Everybody just kind of got it. And um, we were rehearsing weekly for a while, well, at my buddy's, at Jared's apartment. And I booked us a couple of gigs. And they went over really well. Uh, we got a lot of people from Berkeley to come out. and So we were doing that. We were playing pretty much weekly, like whether it was like pretty much rehearsing weekly for our time at Berkeley. And just like workshopping music and, and learning it and memorizing it. And um, we, this was my junior year in the summer, we all went on it. We went on a European tour to Ireland. Uh, the saxophone player in my band, Matthew Halpin, was in Ireland, and we got some funding from the school and some other places. So he brought us over there, and we did a three-week tour. We were playing like almost every night, um, all over the country. And then, that my eh, getting my timeline mixed up. That was sophomore year going into junior year summer, and then junior year we did a trip. To a school trip to the um, Nancy Jazz Festival in France, and we played. We were playing pretty much every night for nine days, and at that point, the music really developed to like a whole new place. You know, it's like one thing to rehearse and play a gig every now and again, but to re- to be touring and playing the music every night is when you really get to learn it and stretch and take it to places that it maybe wouldn't have gone. Sure, and it was. Yeah, it was after that that I decided like I'm doing a record. Like I need to I need to document this and I feel good about it. I feel like the music is where I want it to be. Um at that time. So I did a Kickstarter and we got the like we got total funding for the record and we recorded it in Boston and uh released it independently in September of twenty thirteen. That's fabulous. And it seems like you uh, are still a very busy player. I mean, even just looking at the shows, um, the shows list on your website, it seems like you're you're performing very very regularly in New York. Is that the case? Um, yeah, it's been the last couple of months. I've been playing fairly regularly. Um, I'm playing as a sideman in a couple of different projects. Uh, the most I play with. So the pianist in my band, Christian Lee, he actually released a record last year as well. And we've been doing some shows and actually started recording his second album. I play with his band, and um, I just recently started playing with this really wonderful singer and bass player. Her name is Kate Davis. So we've been doing some shows together. And then Natalie's project, the uh, her band and the duo thing. And, um, I, you know, I do I play with this other really great pianist. His name is Aton Kenner. And uh, just some other freelance gigs that come up, you know, sometimes at like a restaurant or like a private event. But yeah, I guess I'm playing fairly regularly. I haven't really been in New York for too long, so not as much as other people.
Um, speaking of Kate Davis, uh, and many people will know Kate because her her version of uh, all about that bass went viral. But uh, speaking of Kate, will you tell us about Sundance Film Festival? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'd actually never I'd never met Kate before, and she called me one afternoon and asked me if I was available to do this gig at Sundance. And I wasn't actually, but I instantly made myself available. <laughs> um, How did she know and, you existed? Um, well, the drummer that's in her band, uh, Connor Rain, he plays in Natalie's band, and I guess her guitarist couldn't make the date. And so, but I and I know her guitarist, Gabe Schneider. He's an amazing guitar player, and um, I guess he couldn't make it either. I, I think they might have referred me for it. I never, we didn't really talk about it, but Connor mentioned that he gave her my name when he couldn't make the gig. So gotcha. Yeah, I was, and I obviously heard about her. I've known about her for years. Um, so I was really excited when when she called me, and she was really like relaxed on the phone. She said, "Yeah, you know, we're gonna do this gig at Sundance Film Festival for this movie coming out about Nina Simone." And I said, "Oh, cool! I love Nina Simone. I love the music." Uh, that's really cool. And then she said, and one of the special guest singers is Erica Badu. And I was like, what? <laughs> so that was kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we were basically the house band for um, Erica Badu, Aloe Black, Leon Bridges, and Andrew Day, and Kate Sang, too. And it was also really cool because we got to play with Al Shackman, who was Nina's guitar player and musical director. So to, like, work with him firsthand and have him tell some stories about Nina and about other musicians that he's played with was really, really exciting. And and where did this show take place? I mean, I know it's Sundance, but where were you playing? Mm-hmm. So we were, yeah, we were in Park City, Utah at the festival, and we played at, um, wow, I don't know the name of the venue. <laughs> but like a, a theater or something, not, uh, not it, somebody. It actually wasn't a theater. It was a standing room only. And I, act, I thought it was going to be like a really formal like concert in a theater. That was my, how I had envisioned it in my head, but it was like the standing room only and people were like going nuts the whole time and singing along and cheering and dancing. And, uh, we were warming up the stage for common who, you know, brought down the house (laughs) when he came on. Well, that sounds pretty amazing. It was really fun. Yeah. And even like, you know, learning that music and preparing it was, I learned a lot from from that, like just playing simply and playing parts that just feel good and contribute to the music. It's like not, it's not a jazz show. You're not trying to play, you know, all the new chords you've been shedding and like the new harmonic ideas, whatever. It's just like play the right parts that feel good and sound good and make the music sound better. So that was really, that was a good experience for me. Yeah. What are some of the uh, songs that you guys played on that show? Mm Mm-hmm. We did um, Feeling Good. We opened with that. Erica sang that. And we also did Four Women. And we did our own arrangement of that. It actually kind of had a slight... The the main piano riff that was underlying on, on our arrangement of Four Women was very similar to the In the Sentimental Mood piano part with the from the Duke Ellington and John Coltrane record. Sure. So that was really cool. Um, and then we did uh, Rags and Old Iron, uh, Mississippi Goddamn, 
I have the I have the list written down. So no, that's great. I just wanted a little right sampling. That's cool. That that sounds amazing. I wish I could have heard that. It was really fun. <laughs> that's great. So um, let's see. As uh, when this thing comes out, it's going to be mid March, and it looks like uh, in uh, in the late spring or or early summer, you're going to be headed overseas again, right? Oh yeah. Um, so in May, we're all going. It's not my band, but it's all the members that are coincidentally in my band. We're all going to Europe to do um, a play at a festival in France and uh, some other club dates in France. And then we're going to go to Italy and do some club dates there. And then after that, we're kind of splitting up and I'm going to um, Austria, Germany, and Ireland to do some dates with this really wonderful singer, Veronica Morsher, um, who we all recorded on her record. Um, it's called My Heart on a String, and that came out last year, so we're going to do some gigs. We're doing a festival in Cologne and Vienna, I believe. I, I don't have everything in my head, but uh, so yeah, I'll be there from May until mid-June doing various gigs. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, it should be fun. And any plans to uh, head back into the studio, either with your own band or with this duo project with Natalie? Or Yeah, um, Natalie and I have been definitely talking about it, uh, not really seriously, but like that we both would like to do it at some point. Um, we have two videos on YouTube right now. Um, we did uh, Goodbye Lullaby, which is a tune off of my record, a solo piece, and she wrote lyrics to it. So we have we recorded that uh, like a live video, and then um, of another tune called "Folds of Time," which is one of the tunes that we did at the um, concert window show that had kind of the more angular melodies with the weird harmony. <laughs> so we have those two videos up on YouTube. Um, and as far as for my own thing, I definitely would like to record again. It's just a matter of finding the funds for it. I don't really want to do a Kickstarter again. So I guess I, I need to talk to some people and see if they have any suggestions about how I could come up with the funds for doing another record. Well, I'm still I'm still waiting for that exciting folk hero, the bank robber jazz musician who, uh, <laughs> you know, knocks over banks by day and then uses the money to fund albums by night. So, <laughs> so Somebody's got to do it. Because so, then we have a movie possibility and it just it really screams, yeah, you know, like a good Quentin Tarantino film about the guy who the saxophone oh, player or guitar amazing. player who, yeah, totally, exactly. So I'm I'm not suggesting that you go in that direction. I'm just saying if you did, I wouldn't be disappointed. That's all I'm putting. <laughs> Quentin's my favorite. Yeah, he's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> my guest is Mike Bono. Uh, his record is From Where You Are, and make sure you check out the show notes uh, for a link to that album. Mike, it's been really fun to talk to you, and uh, I look forward to watching your career develop. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. It was, it was really great to talk to you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.